0: All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to What the Fix, Episode 2. My name's Paul Roberts. I'm Jack Monahan, And we're here uh, with our very special guest, Kyle Weens of iFixit. Kyle, welcome. Hey, excited to be here. We're really excited to have you. So this is, you know, What the Fix is a podcast. We're all about uh, right to repair and the fight to repair. Uh, as well as the bigger issues that uh, right to repair touches on—circular economy, sustainability, consumer rights—so um, we are really thrilled to have Kyle with us. Because Kyle, I don't, I don't know if I don't know if I could say you single-handedly started the right to repair movement, but you were certainly an uh, important figure in uh, this this global now global movement.
1: We have been tilting at this windmill, this idea that you can fix (laughs) your own things for a long while, ever since I was trying to fix an iBook and couldn't because the service manual had been taken offline by evil lawyers. Uh, We've been on this crusade to make sure that you can fix all your things.
0: As as a college student, less, out of your dorm room. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to talk about that. but first, we're going to do what we usually do in What the Fix, which is run down the Right to Repair news of the week. And I think we all have a story uh, that we want to highlight. And um, Kyle, you're our guest, so I'm going to start with you. What, what's the Right to Repair story this week that you want to talk about?
1: Well, Apple announced in the fall that they were going to be launching a parts program in early 2022. Here we are, it's May, and they have launched the program. Uh, and I can confirm it's not Vaporware because we ordered the tools. Apple said that you know that you can now order or actually rent uh, tools from Apple. So we rented the $49 set of tools. They put a $1,200 hold on your credit card because they mail you two massive Pelican cases. So we got these two huge Pelican cases. They weigh 79 pounds. We were trying to photograph them. Just We're making a video kind of showing our experience. And we kept having to move the camera farther and farther away from these cases. We don't normally shoot things this big. Uh, they're hilarious. Like, do not drop them on your foot. Um, yeah, and they are uh, the reason that it's seventy nine pounds is these are the exact tools that the Apple geniuses have uh, behind the doors. So I, it, what's interesting, I've been working on Apple uh, repair for my entire career and right to repair for a very long time, and I had never actually touched or seen in person these tools before because they've been
0: secret. It's an it's like a whole workbench that they're sending you basically. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's fancy yeah. jigs and, and suction cups and, and heat uh, heating elements and uh, battery uh, press for, for gluing the battery back down. Yeah. Uh, they're great tools.
2: So you're slightly impressed?
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm impressed. I mean, there's a world of kind of manufacturing jigs that you use um, that are not your kind of typical workshop tools. You're not going to, ha- you know, you might have a screwdriver at home. You're not going to have a full-blown battery press. Uh, so if you're a specialized repair shop and you work uh, and you want specialized tools for a particular device, this kind of approach makes sense. And that's what, of course, Apple does at, at their Apple stores. So then they said, well, if we're going to have to roll out a program to consumers, we'll give them the same tools
0: we have in the Apple store. It's it's great. And yet in some ways, um, kind of, I mean, I think one of the great things is that, you know, you can go on iFixit and I've done this myself and watch a video on how to replace a screen in an iPhone, or, or do another repair, replace a battery. And you, know, you don't need a whole tool case full of tools. Most of these things you can do with, with very simple tools. So um, in some ways, sending you the whole workshop is kind of a little overkill. I think it presents repair as something maybe more complicated than it actually really is.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, the goal of Right to Repair is to democratize repair, right, to make it so everyone can fix their things. Now, the way that the Right to Repair bill is phrased is it says manufacturers must make available to consumers the same information and tools that their repair shops use. So Apple is complying with the leather of the law, but not really the spirit and intent, which is let's enable, let's make it easy. I want it to be so easy to fix things that people are more likely to fix it than to buy a new one. Um, Clearly, Apple doesn't feel the same way. Right.
0: Okay. Okay. Uh, Jack, what's your uh, what's your story for the week?
2: My story is about another big tech company, Microsoft. So they were getting pounded pretty hard by their shareholders about their just e-waste problem and lack of repairability back in 2019. I know that iFixit gave their, I think it was their Surface Pro 7, a one um, in terms of repairability. And they've kind of like toggled back and forth in terms of like how repairable their laptops in particular have been. But as part of this kind of big push they're making for environmental and sustainability causes within the company, they just had this report created by some consulting company that focuses specifically on circular economy issues. And they came up with a couple, you know, recommendations and kind of data points. And what they found was essentially that you know, repairing rather than replacing a device can dramatically reduce carbon emissions associated with the device as well as, you know, the waste that ends up, you know, after somebody tosses it out. And what was really interesting to me was a lot of it had to do with like travel and supply logistics. And so like how close you're mailing the phone, you know, where is that actually going? And so a lot of times we're thinking about, you know, you know, access to parts and other stuff like that. But, you know, not everybody's going to be a hobbyist. Not everybody's going to want to crack open their iPhone or their, you know, um, Microsoft device. So it is interesting thinking about how you know, how we structure these programs. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, Microsoft is
1: having to invent a repair program. So they're in a different position than Apple. Apple's got their genius bars. They've got a repair network. Um, they also have their authorized service centers. Microsoft is coming from a place where they basically didn't have a repair network at all. And so they're needing to build it all out. Like, yes, they need consumer parts and tools, but they also need local repair options. And that's where this report is coming in as they're saying, look, Microsoft, you need to build out authorized repair and independent repair. And, and there, I mean, the numbers are staggering. They said that there's a 92% uh, carbon savings from, from doing a repair as opposed to buying a new
2: device. Yeah, in some ways they're almost better off for having to like start and start now i mean
0: also interesting that report just in uh, jack like you said sort of thinking about all the different ways that the current system you know kind of creates waste right and 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 all the different ways that you know more easier repairability would reduce that waste so yeah
1: The other thing that this report calls out is like real differences between generations of the same product so they compare uh the older surface pro to the one that's been redesigned to be easier to repair um, and and they're saying like, look, the redesign of the product enables repair to happen locally, where before the non-repairable design meant it basically had to go back to the factory for factory-level rework. And so, I think that really is a design for repair success story.
0: Agreed, agreed. So good news from Microsoft in some ways, um, and of course, Microsoft has been working with iFixit as well. So there's there's been a lot of progress uh, from that company in the last year. So my story is, uh, for the week is from Ford Motor Company, um, which this week announced a program, uh, Ford certified glass technician program to certify people to replace auto glass in Ford automobiles. Now, you might think that in 2022, it's kind of late in the game to be introducing a certification program for auto glass replacement, <laughs> given that there's already a really robust industry of independent auto glass replacement, and as well as Ford dealerships. This really speaks to, uh, th- th- basically what's motivating this is that Ford and, and other automakers as well are, are trying to argue that the uh, appearance The introduction of features like these kind of advanced uh, driver assistance features in cars has changed the game and made really simple repairs like Autoglass. Um, suddenly a lot more complicated and serious. And their response to that, of course, is to want to kind of slam the gates down on independent repair people doing this and say, no, 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 this is now so complicated that really only the manufacturer or our authorized repair people should do it. And so this certification program is is in theory about training people, but actually, as with most repair certification programs, it's really a, a mechanism for revenue extraction. Action. So anybody, any shop that wants to do this has to pay a um, enrollment fee. Ford uh, was asked about this by um, Repair Driven News, uh, what those fees were. It didn't disclose them. Uh, in addition, they asked Agree to use um, Ford uh, specified equipment to uh, calibrate the glass and do all these other things associated with the repair. So it's not just about the training to do it right; it's also about using their equipment, paying the fee, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Often these certification programs are really about constraining what you can do and how you can do it, um, rather than just kind of giving you the information you need to go out and do it yourself. Um, and my, so my concern with all this is, I think we're going to see a lot more of this. That it, it basically falls into the same right to repair argument we hear a long time, all the time, which is, you know, technology and features and complexity change the game. So you used to be able to repair your car in your driveway, but it's all, it's all so much more complex. Now you can't do that anymore. You have to let basically the manufacturer do it. Um, and you know, I don't think there's any data to back that up. I doubt that there's any data, um, to back up that, you know, um, AutoZone or or uh, uh, an independent glass replacement company can't repair this glass perfectly, safely, and do it in such a way that it doesn't interfere with the operation of the driver assistance software and the sensors and so on. Um, but look forward to automakers making this argument about all kinds of different features, maybe even replacing tires, right? I mean, you know, there's really no end to where this argument- uh,
1: There's a design for repair aspect of this too, where if you put the camera behind the glass, then you have to calibrate the camera when you install new glass. If you don't put the camera behind the glass, then it's just a dumb sheet of glass. Go figure. Uh, I, I remember, so we were at the FTC workshop, Paul and I were there, and Gary McGraw, your our security expert, was on stage, and he was talking. He said, "Hey, yeah, I have an Audi, and the windshield broke, and I called Safe Light to get them to repair the glass." And he didn't know at the time that Safe Light was in the room, <laughs> and and Safe Light wasn't able to repair it because of you know the, the Audi camera calibration thing. And I went up to the Safe Light folks afterwards, and I said, "What's the deal?" And they're like, "Yeah, uh, Audi wants you know five thousand dollars or something for this crazy calibration setup, and we just can't have it at every mobile you know repair technician."
2: Is it companies that are just a this like do they get to make the calls on this there's no like independent regulators when it comes to like stuff around repair
1: there's no regulation, and this is as we move software into more and more things. There's more precision. Uh, then the manufacturers just winging it, and they just design a new system every time. It's so the calibration tooling for calibrating camera, uh, you know, cameras behind window glass is totally different per manufacturer. Yet you got to come up with standardization and modularity right. uh, around these things. Right. Uh, and and I think as we're moving into the new computerized future, we're just not getting that kind of standardization efforts.
0: And, and one thing that might help would be for th- for organizations like the Federal Trade Commission to come out and say, listen, we're going to be looking for companies that are basically using features like this or, or programs like this to engage in anti-competitive behavior, right? So, you know, setting things up in such a way that, you know, you and only you can do repair X, um, we're just going to consider that anti-competitive. Um, but... You know, right now, it's there isn't a lot of um, you know these are new features and new technologies. There isn't a lot of history or, or track record with this, so we're kind of uh, learning as we're going. And, and I think this announcement from Ford. I think again, we're going to we're going to see more of this, um, so we need to pay attention, Kyle. Tell us about you know, man. So many questions. Um, give us just the the little for for listeners and viewers who don't know. Um, tell us a little bit about iFixit and and how your the company that you founded uh, came about. Um, because I think iFixit, the, the creation of iFixit, in some ways is sort of the the um, genesis in some ways of the right to repair movement itself.
1: Sure. Yeah, I, I worked in high school. I worked at an Apple authorized service center, so I, I knew so what the repair ecosystem looked like. And I, I remember I was making
0: inside inside the Death Star, yes.
1: Yeah, so I was making six dollars <laughs> and fifty cents an hour and I saved up all the money I made in high school to buy an iBook. Uh, that was my computer for school. And of course, you know, a couple months into school, I dropped it on the power plug. Uh, and it was wiggly, and so I'm like, okay, I'll just look at the service manual, I'll open it up. Grandfather gave me a soldering iron when I went to computer science school. He didn't know this software. He didn't know the difference between electrical engineering and computer science. He's like, here's your soldering iron, you go to the software school. Uh, and uh, so I I pull uh, I start pulling the machine apart and realize it's complicated. There's latches and tabs. And, and so I, I looked for the service manual, could not find it anywhere, muddled my way through the repair, kind of barely succeeded, and then kind of went down a little bit of a crusade. Like, why isn't the service manual online? And I found the digital traces that the manual had been there and that there had been DMCA takedown requests sent by Apple's lawyers. So... Then I'm like, okay, there's a big company who's using legal threats to prevent people from knowing how to fix things. That just struck me as wrong. And knowing at at least a little bit about copyright law, I said, well, if I write my own service manual, they can't stop me. Uh, And so we took the computer apart again, took apart a few other computers, wrote service manuals, posted them online. They got very popular, and then we figured out we could kind of build a business around that by selling the parts and tools. So we kind of created an ecosystem to replace the ecosystem that Apple had taken offline.
0: When did it move from from that kind of solving a problem, filling a need um, and starting a business around it to this kind of broader idea of like, well, there's actually a, there's a right here that should exist that's missing, right? That th- this isn't something that's articulated in the law, you know, and yet we need it.
1: So we were working at systematically replacing the ecosystem that Apple had, uh, you know, had kind of smushed. Uh, and, and we got to the point where we were actually comprehensive. We had service manuals, parts, and tools online for every Apple product. And then we started doing it for other manufacturers. We opened it up as a wiki. And, and I fixed this you know vibrant and growing community. We've got repair manuals that our community has created for over 60,000 different products. Uh, but we found that we couldn't keep up. <laughs> so there was a few factors. One was the community cannot recreate uh, manuals for products as fast as manufacturers can create products. And then also we started running into obstacles with things like a proprietary screwdriver or special software tools that manufacturers would create. And we realized that if we really are going to achieve our mission of enabling everyone to fix everything, we're not going to be able to do that purely by crowdsourcing it. We have to have some input and collaboration from manufacturers. So the first thing I did way before we started thinking about to repair laws was we just started reaching out to manufacturers and saying, hey, do you want to work with us? Can, you know, we've got the system, it works well. What if you did the same thing in silence? And so then I was like, well, what if we could give them a carrot? And so we went to the green standards, uh, these, uh, you know, eco stickers, and, and we started engaging in the standards and saying, hey, can we give manufacturers voluntary points for making service manuals available or, or for uh, making batteries easier to replace? Um, and I naively thought we'll provide some kind of cool, friendly way to work with them. What we didn't realize is this concept of regulatory capture, where the manufacturers had already infiltrated the green standards process and were not going to allow anything innovative in those standards whatsoever. So I wasted five years of my life trying to make repairability a factor in green environmental standards in the US, and it still isn't there. It's not the case. We completely failed. We fell flat on our face uh, because Apple was there to systematically sabotage it.
0: What was the moment of like clarity for you on that? Uh, th- I remember th- there was a point where,
1: where we said, hey, like, uh, let's propose a criteria where uh, you get extra points if you use commonly available tools. And Apple said, well, there's no way you could possibly know what common tools are for working on smartphones. And I said, absolutely, we can. I've got a repair manual for every smartphone in the world that I wrote. Like, let me just mine the data. And I gave them a spreadsheet. And I was like, here, you can see it's Torx T5 and then Phillips triple zero. These are the common screws. And Apple would not accept a list of commonly available tools unless it included the Pentalobe screwdriver.
0: Which only they use.
1: Which is, right, because there's enough iPhones sold. that, of course, right. this is a commonly available tool. And they just like vetoed it entirely unless it included there. And so that's where it's, this, okay, This this whole thing is a joke. Um, and that really was what prompted us to say, let's just go to legislation. These companies have no interest in having a voluntary conversation.
0: When, when, was, the first, when was the first law?
1: Performed? The first law that was proposed was in South Dakota, I think maybe in 2012, I, 2014. It's been a while. Uh, yeah, we had this super badass uh, lawmaker in South Dakota that wanted to to get it started, and then it's just it's just spread by wildfire. It's amazing. You would think like we're like coordinating every state that introduces laws. No, we have no idea. Like some uh, legislator in Indiana will see the template and introduce a law. And we're like, cool. Sometimes they make changes that we would have never anticipated.
0: What I like about this is that there's sort of a template law, and then people can pick up on it in some ways business interests have done this very effectively through groups like ALEC, right, of just having kind of broad outline laws that individual legislators and states can introduce and, and it's all kind of done for you. It has been really effective. I, I will say rights repair has not been quite as effective as the business community in getting some of these laws passed, but I do think things are changing. We've seen, you know, the past few years that the number of states doing this has just skyrocketed. I think, uh, you know, 20, 20 plus states, uh, What's your sense right now of, of what the state of play is with with right to repair getting passed uh, a, a, at the state level as a, as a right
1: well we have huge momentum now so we've been introducing bills ever since the South Dakota bill every state every year more and more states introduce bills and and at first they were dying in committee then we started making it through committee and they'd die in different areas. Um, So in every state that we have a bill introduced, Apple and John Deere and others come in and they hire the most expensive lobbyists that have not only extensive connections, but they're also making political contributions. And they find some way of killing it. Sometimes it dies silently in a secret committee, like a rules committee or something. But every year, as it gets introduced multiple times, people get more familiar with it. We make a a little bit more progress. Uh, We were really close in New York last year and then just ran out of time. Um, in Washington state, um, we made it out of key committees. We were ready for a vote and then, and then ran out of floor time. Um, so we're, we're, we're increasingly close. Uh, w- w- the state of play right now is over 20 states introduced right to repair in 2022. Many of those have run out of time, uh, but, but many are still going. Um, Colorado has a wheelchair-focused right to repair bill. Minnesota's been working hard on it. It's Massachusetts moving along. New York um, is looking promising. Um, so we have more momentum and backing. This is because you have the Biden administration supporting it. The Federal Trade Commission actually helped make edits uh, and changes to the to the draft bill. So it's been really well vetted and thought through. Um, now we just need one state to cross the finish
2: line. Kyle, do you see the... So iFixit has just, like, promoted its partnerships with Google and Samsung are the most recent and that's making, you know, parts and just repair more available for those phones. But kind of where do you see the role of those playing versus legislation?
1: What iFixit is building with these companies is we are building the solution that the laws are asking for. Uh, So... So you're going to see Microsoft or Samsung when it comes down to say, are we complying? They're saying, yeah, we're selling tools. You can go get them and I fix it. So we're, we're kind of helping. Not uh, Hopefully it's more than just compliance. Hopefully they, they go above and beyond you know the minimum that the law requires. But that's the system that, that we're building out. Uh, and I can speak to Samsung and Google because we've announced it, the plan is to sell you know, repair parts uh, for their phones alongside side tools. So that you, everything that you need to fix a phone should be included in these programs.
0: I wonder, like there's been, so Apple came out, as you, as you said, with their program, a couple, you know, whatever it was a week ago. Um, obviously anything Apple does is just huge news, right? It just gets a lot of attention. There are a lot of Apple fans out there. It's a huge company. Um, criticisms of like kind of how that program is structured. And I think generally there is a sense of, you know, OEMs are doing this, Google, Microsoft, Apple, Samsung, it's great. And yet um, some of these programs fall short of what a true legal right to repair would require of them. What's your sense? I mean, is it... um, if enough companies did this, uh, would that be adequate, or is it is it still necessary going to be necessary to have that legally guaranteed right to repair?
1: It's necessary to get a law passed, even if uh, so. Let's say you know Apple, Microsoft, Google, Samsung, all these companies. Let's say they're doing the right thing; they're going going above and beyond. We still need a law because you have a lot of other manufacturers. Uh, like what's Sony doing, for example? Uh, Xiaomi or Huawei, right? Like you have so many other companies that that haven't stepped up uh, all the way over to you know no-name products. Like if you go to uh, say Best Buy and you buy an Insignia brand refrigerator or TV, are you ever going to get parts for that? The at the lower end of the market, these kind of entry-level devices are are the ones that are the most disposable. We have the most uh, uh, biggest waste problem with. And so we need to push on having service networks for all the products in our lives. You would expect the elite, the apples, the the products you pay a premium for, you'd expect there to be a service network for those. But if we really want to move uh, the needle on our e-waste problem, we need to address all the products in the marketplace. And so there needs to be a regulatory floor or some like minimum barrier to entry to the market where we say, look, you cannot dump your refrigerator on our market unless you have a plan for making replacement compressors available.
0: Kyle, you're somebody who is really the face, in some ways, of the right to repair movement. You have been very vocal advocate, in many cases, very critical of, of manufacturers and their practices. And yet, when Samsung or Microsoft or you know uh, Google want you know want it, look to a partner to help them with you know user with you know to 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 build out their program for user repairs, they came to you and I fix it. So
2: they kissed the ring. Um,
0: <laughs> not really. I mean, yeah, maybe. Um, but that's really unusual that you have somebody who both is is both able to be a critic of and is and sort, of, sort of a Ralph Nader of, you know, repair out there really advocating for this right in a, in a very passionate way. And yet also cultivated, obviously, uh, good relationships with the OEM so that they trust you to actually carry out the program. So how did you pull that
1: off well i think what's key is like we didn't
0: start out from a position of
1: advocacy we started out from a position that we just want to help people fix things and we we were kind of forced into advocacy because it was the only way to get that task accomplished but i'm an engineer i just want to fix things uh and i think that the manufacturers saw our intent all along the way like we were we've been writing repair manuals for for the samsung phones we've been writing repair manuals for the pixel phones we've been making them available for free uh so the logical conclusion is well not, why not lean into the solutions that we've already created? Uh, but yeah, I mean, it is definitely a shift from you know advocating uh, to collaborating. But I, as I as I mentioned, like we wanted to collaborate before we went into advocacy. Like we tried to ask nice, and they just weren't ready culturally. And I think that that maybe is part of you know realizing that we're dealing with these large organizations that were like Samsung and Google are a system of of people and systems and right. So we're trying to change that system. You had individuals all along the way that probably wanted to collaborate and they just couldn't move the machine. Now, by by having legislation out there, it provides the folks internally who want to do this with, with the
2: lever that they need to move the machine. As someone that has been pushing for this for longer than most, can you talk a little bit about that evolution, right? Like what, obviously companies above all else, they need to make money and profits are king. But, like, what is the next thing down the line in your mind? Like are when you're talking to people from these companies, is it sustainability? Is it like? These companies are driven by compliance. they they
1: they are large companies. They need to comply with the laws in order to operate. Uh, they are not scoff laws that are. Uh, saying, you know, how can we, you know, bypass environmental regulation somewhere? Uh, they really do want to comply with the law. And so when they see new laws down the pike, uh, and and potentially if Right to Repair passes, it could go into effect instantly. Um, the the responsible uh, lawyers inside these companies are saying, let's get systems in place to comply with the law. So I would say, first and foremost, they are they are driven by the desire to comply with current or pending laws. Then, as a backup to that obviously, there's really good reasons to be investing in environmental um, uh, activities. So we're, we're giving them a lot of good reasons to, to do this. But, but uh, <laughs> as much as I'd like to say, oh, yeah, they would have done this out of the goodness of their heart. I've been trying for, for near 20 years. And this is only happening because the legislation is so close.
0: In addition to right to repair, you've done a lot of really important work around exemptions for the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, Section twelve oh one. This is kind of a kind of a lot behind the scenes, quieter type stuff. But but you've actually been really important and influential in in winning some key DMCA uh, Section twelve oh one exemptions. Talk about that work and also. How how responsible is the DMCA for this kind of larger shift from, you know, I, I often point out, you know, 40 or 50 years ago, you know, many appliance makers, you know, and and electronics makers published really detailed schematics and service manuals with their stuff. Now it's it's more the exception than the rule. How important in or or is DMCA to that larger kind of cultural shift on the part of companies? And and is it possible we could be in a situation at some point in the near future where we get rid of section 1201 and somehow you know liberate everybody i don't know
1: yeah i, I don't know if 1201 is responsible for um for kind of the diminishing availability of service i think that probably has some more to do with just broader liability and, and trends in society in general um and so i think the, the broad rights repair movement is going to help that what 1201 stifles and by the way stepping back section 1201 is the section of copyright law that says that you cannot break technological locks on products. And then uh, if you have figured out how to do that, you definitely cannot sell a tool that enables that. And the problem is that as we have modern products with software in them, repairing a product often involves breaking a lock. And so kind of accidentally, this law that was designed to prevent piracy that was passed in the 90s uh, is preventing repairs and is being used by, by Philips and all kinds of other manufacturers to stifle repair. What 1201 really is responsible for is stifling the market, that there is not a marketplace of repair tools out there. You can't go to a venture capitalist and say, please give me $10 million to start a new auto, you know, cool auto-diagnostic repair app, because the VC is going to say, well, maybe that's going to, you know, like, you'll have to bypass a lock to do that, and, um, and, and we have liability concerns. And so there's just a whole market for tools that doesn't exist that could. Um, there's a shadow economy of you know, potentially hundreds of millions, billions of dollars of value of people creating nifty tools to enable productivity with John Deere tractors that doesn't exist because – so that that's the harm that 1201 is, is causing. And that – unfortunately, we can't fix that with exemptions. We can't fix that with our three-year process because the Copyright Office doesn't think they have the right to, in the authorized tools, we have to have a legislative fix. And that's where the Mondaire Jones uh, sparts bill that's in Congress right now has a chance to
0: do. Um, Kyle, final question. Um, you know, folks are interested in learning more about doing repairs and um, becoming a fixer themselves. Uh, what would you recommend?
1: Yeah, so the the Jones Spartz bill is uh, you know something to, to you know reach out to your Congress uh, person and say you support the Freedom to Repair Act, um, you know get engaged you know uh, join I Fix It learn how to fix something um, and uh, and and you know maybe take photos the next time you fix something we don't have a guide for okay. contribute it back.
0: Go on YouTube man. YouTube is a is a you know. Great resource as well. Hey, Kyle Weens of iFixit, thank you so much for coming on and being our guest on What The Fix podcast. It's been a pleasure and I'm sure we'll
2: have you back. (laughs) Thanks, Paul. This is awesome. Thanks again for watching What The Fix. Reminder that if you leave a five-star review on your podcasting platform of choice and a question, we can answer it in a future episode. And extra bonus points if you are a premium subscriber, which Paul can tell you about.
0: So go over to fighttorepair.substack.com and sign up for a premium subscription. That'll get you access to the full unedited video of our conversations each week, uh, as well as access to additional content as well. Outtakes, transcripts, and special articles that uh, the public doesn't get access to. So check it out, fighttorepair.substack.com and sign up for one of our premium subscriptions.